Welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sacred Justice. We are here today. I am Mia, and I'm here with Ben. <laughs> and welcome back. Welcome back. This is episode four. We are excited about this new season of our podcasting journey. On our last Good. episode, I uh, spoke with the Reverend Carrie Veal about beginning again, about her thoughts on beginning again. Um, and what have we learned over the past 14 months, Ben? And I'm going to give you a chance to answer that question. But one of the Ooh. things that uh, Carrie and I talked about was um, about rest. And she told this story about this uh, woman who was on a podcast. I think the podcast is by Reverend Nadia Boatsweber. Um, mm -hmm. I forget what it's called. But uh, this woman was talking about how she was just so exhausted. And uh, I'm not sure if this was during quarantine or before. But she talked about one point checking herself into a hospital because she felt like that was the only place she could just do nothing and have people care for her around the clock. I'm mm. assuming this woman had like children and family responsibilities and things. And she was just talking about how tired she was. And I think that, you know, Carrie and I were talking a lot about rest over the past uh, 14 months and how rest is justice and, and how she felt like, you know, uh, it falls under the category of justice because we have become a society that applauds busyness. And so to actually take time to rest, if you are even able to do that, mm. is an act of justice. And I was thinking about the Nat Ministry, which is this Twitter account oh. and Instagram account that I, you know, we both of us probably follow this woman. Her name is Trisha Hersey, and she graduated from Candler, um, I guess it's called Candler School of Theology. Um, at years ago, and her her whole platform is about promoting rest, particularly for Black women, but for everybody. And rest is resistance. And I thought that was so interesting as a current event story to be thinking on rest as an act of justice. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, as we continue to begin again, what have we learned? What have you learned over the past fourteen months about about yourself, about resting? Um, about the work that you do? Whew, yeah, I mean, I think rest rest is a big one. Um, I was, you know, I was approaching a sabbatical, which would have been the first in my career uh, at that point. Um, and I was about to go when the pandemic hit. I was two months away, less than two months away from sabbatical. And so I had to put that much needed time and period of rest, which Thank God the congregation sees that as valuable and has that available to us. Um, but I had to put that on hold. And now it will be it will actually end up being a year and a half, uh, almost uh, 18 months from the time I should have gone to when I will get to go. Um, and so um, I think what I found is that there's certain aspects of ministry 
are far more fulfilling to me than others and uh, energizing to me than others. And um, I've had to learn how to, you know, I think through endurance differently and think through preaching differently. And where am I prioritizing to, um, you know, I had a pastor who said to me years ago that you have to reinvent yourself every 10 years as a pastor. And I think that's unfortunately for the pastors coming up. I hate to say this now. It's more like five or three years now when it used to be 10 uh, because people's time, uh, you know, attention span is so much shorter. So I have found some ways to reinvent myself and my ministry uh, in the pandemic. I'm grateful for that. If I hadn't, though, I feel like I would be much more stagnant. And um, I do think, though, that one of the things I think I learned about myself is that I'm adaptable, but it takes a lot of work. And so, like, I, I have habits that I are deeply ingrained about the way I did ministry, the way I went about my work. Uh, early mornings, late night meetings, sometimes putting in hours, 12 hour days, you know, multiple days a week. Um, that was not sustainable nor necessary in the pandemic, but different kinds of exhaustions happened in the pandemic, zoom fatigue, um, and, you know, having meetings right up against each other with no break in between because there was nowhere to go and, and just crazy stuff that happened as, as the pandemic unfolded that I wasn't doing otherwise. So it was, it was not any less exhausting, but a different kind of exhaustion. What I found, though, is that I had to ch- create a new rule of life for the pandemic and one that was sustaining for me that involved time for myself, for my own self-care, but also a lot of exercise. I had to eat differently because I was home all the time, you know, so I had to start, you know, I think having a place in my house that was my like office space and where I did work also really helped kind of create boundaries in my life from like eating is a place for that. And then there's a place for where I work and there's a place for where I watch TV and there's a place for where I read and everything has its own place. And I know what I'm doing when I'm in that place. Otherwise I don't know where I am. I can get kind of lost in the cycle of what time is it? Do I need to get a shower? Do I, does it matter? What's the next meeting on my calendar? It's just, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a monotony and a cycle that happens to it, but I had to create opportunities. So what I just started doing is like anytime I had like a two hour window, I would go running or take a walk. And I did that for a year. <laughs> so every time I had a two hour window for a year, I went running. So I, you know, clock, I've gone through two pairs of running shoes in the last year and just, you know, lost some weight. And, um, and it's, that has, it's been amazing what that's done for my mental health and my ability to kind of transition from one meeting with one topic to the next meeting and a different topic. And to also do things kind of the kind of work that I engage in tends to be heavy emotional at every stage. So every meeting is heavy emotional. You know, because I'm making these really ridiculous decisions that are going to have impact on a lot of people. So, um, you know, there's heavy emotions. And so being able to carry the emotions and be present fully in each meeting. um, So, yeah, one of the things, of course, that I helped that helped kind of reinvent me and uh, and do a reinvention of my ministry in the pandemic was this. What does it mean to be white series that we're going to talk about today? But that really honestly, that has reinvigorated my sense of call and um, my focus. Yeah, that's, that's great. I love this idea of reinvention. And I've been thinking a lot about that too. You know, I'm an artist. 
before I was in the so you're always having to reinvent yourself as an artist. I was people get bored with you. So I just sort of carry that. I carry that mindset over. I remember I, I first got my website when I was 18, and the amount of iterations of that website that have happened over 14 years. I mean, I probably had I probably had seven different websites. I mean, in terms of the look and the feel, and I'm just sort of used to having to constantly reinvent uh, mm. because that's the nature of of that work. But I think that that's going to serve well, as you're saying. You know, and I've heard that before too. That pastors have to reinvent themselves every ten years, but maybe it is three five, and and so we're going to have to think differently about that. Yeah, always, yeah. always beginning. We're always in the genesis. Right. It's that it's that re- constant resurrection, constant death and resurrection, constant new creation, new birth, being born again, born anew, over and over and over again, not one time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we're going to jump into our our news and culture, current events section, then. I have been reading a lot of news, and I just had to shut. I had to shut Twitter down because I was like, I can't. <laughs> but um, I just for a while. I just got to get it for a while. But one of the things I've been following on Twitter is um, I follow a pastor. Um, her name is Melissa. Uh, is it Flora Bixler? Flora yeah. Bixler. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I follow follow Melissa and. Um, think she pastures in Raleigh or Durham around the triangle. And so yeah. uh, a lot of her work is really kind of talking about, I mean, she's a, she's a Mennonite pastor, a small church. Um, uh, and she's been doing a lot of work around what is it like to pastor a small congregation in a dying church context, right? There's all these articles coming out about the church is dying, the church is diminishing, you know, this, that, and the other. But she also talks about organizing and what is sort of the role of the church in organizing and setting captives mm. free. So I've just been sitting with that. Like, what is what is my role? Um, I'm just trying to find the thing that really speaks to me. And I think she talks a lot about organizing labor uh, because the decline in volunteerism is, in her opinion and others' opinion, connected to the fact that people are just having to work these ridiculous schedules. We are in a gig economy. And so you really can't. It's hard to like get somebody to come to the church and volunteer to be the sound guy because they're going to want to get paid for it because this is the economic landscape that we live in. And so then what does that mean for the church? Right. If you have to pay every single person that's offering a time and a talent. And so I've been thinking a lot about housing and, and just this um, precarious economic landscape that we're in that's causing a lot of these issues. Um, so I'm just ruminating on that. I don't have any particular article. I'm just reading a lot about, um, you know, all of the intersections of the church is dying with, the, you know, all of the nuances that never get mentioned in the headlines about why things are happening the way they are. Mm, no one wants to talk about the fact that capitalism is part of what's killing the church. No one wants to talk about that. I never have. I don't think I've read a single article that has blamed church decline on the aggressive, um, you know, savage form of economic exploitation that our, most of us live under where there are no free time. Just back to your rest question. There is no free time. Remember the weekends were brought to us by the labor movement, but now the weekends have been taken away again. Um, they are no longer sacred. Sunday's not even sacred. And I'm going to talk about blue laws about where to get alcohol. I'm talking about people straight up having to work from nine to five on a Sunday. Right. And not to mention, if you're a retail worker, that ship sailed long ago. 
but I'm talking about everybody, bank workers, school workers. I mean, everybody, um, you know, and I think that this idea that somehow the church was going to survive, you know, taking everybody's free time away. No, when people are working on Sundays or it's the only time they have to see their kids all week long and you're going to have them come and sit in church. Um, so this has been a problem that the economic system has created. It's also what has destroyed the family in America, also the economic system. It's, and no one ever wants to talk about that. We want to blame some other cultural or moral problem um, that has destroyed the family. Now, the cultural and moral problem is capitalism. That's the cultural and moral problem. Um, and that has created this, this issue for us. And um, I was thinking about how for, for pastors particularly, um, you know, Episcopalians, Methodists, Catholics, they have a group that they, they are basically unionized as pastors because they're part of a diocese or, and you, you know, a lot of them have lifetime appointments as clergy and will be paid even if they're not in a position and have retirements and pensions. But there is no union for Congregationalist ministers or Baptist ministers. So, the problem with that is that there is no standard set for health care, wages. Um, there is no standard set for vacation, sabbatical, time away. There's no standard set for workplace, you know, malfeasance or things that can, except for what's set for all workers, right? There's nothing specific to the job like you would have specific to the job of being in a, a, a factory worker, uh, or specific to the job of being a teacher. You have ish things that are specific to that. We don't have anything like that. So I was thinking about, do we need a union for Baptist pastors? You know? And then That's I said this, cool. I said this to a friend of mine. First, of course, they say what everybody always says to me is, are you going to start it? And then the second thing they say, she said is, um, why doesn't the Alliance become a union? So why aren't the denominational entities in congregational life operating like unions for the pastors instead of like supply chains for laity? You know, like they like I don't know, know what they I don't even know if denominational in congregational life really have a purpose anyway, because it's like loose affiliations and we, you know, we decide to be a part of them. It's not a requirement. So. The, the relationship between affiliations is so different. But anyway, I I think that we, you know, back, clergy need a union. So and what what if you could deliver to a church, for instance, like a seminary degree supposedly says you're getting this caliber clergy person, which never really is true. Right. But um, what if like a seminary degree, what if you could say, oh, you're hiring a, a union pastor? We're going to have a union pastor and you could you could require a certain you could accept all these expectations that come along with it, but also the quality would be better. You know, you could yeah. say this, this clergy person has gone through these many hours of training to be prepared to come. And they are now eligible to be a unioned pastor in your congregation. You know, um, I, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think the pastoral residency programs are doing that. I don't think the denominations are doing that. Um, but we're, you know, well, we're I'm talking about a labor man. issue. I would say, you know, for the United Church of Christ, there I wouldn't call it a union, but there is like a pension board that you can go through to do your, you know, things. And then, you know, there there is a protocol for um, hiring pastors, and you have to, in order to be ordained, you have to meet a certain kind of criteria. So I think that there are congregationalists who have something 
I wouldn't call it a union, but they there is some there's levels to this, right? To know that yeah, yeah. I can I can go through the UCP pension board. I can have somebody advocate for me on a denominational level. Um, but it's not as of course it's not as clean and cut as, you know, if you were Episcopal or Methodist. Um, well, but also think about our church like ours. You're right that there are levels and Baptists are the worst. And then uh, of, of the worst, what happens when a church no longer really cares about its affiliation with a, with a particular denominational body? It puts the clergy further and further out on an island, right? Um, you know, and, and away from best practices and, and more in line with whatever the church has decided they want to do which can be helpful or harmful to a clergy person. You know, you never really know. So I just think about it. What, what would it look like to have a union for Baptist clergy? Or, I don't know. But it would help clergy, I think, have an economic lens to not only their work, but the work that everybody in their congregation is doing, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree, yeah. So what's in the news for you, Ben? Anything that, that uh, sparked your interest? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's a lot right now going on in, in Jerusalem. And uh, I, I see the, this, this uptick in conflict there uh, of, a, of a centuries old conflict uh, in a very place in which the Bible is born from and the stories of Scripture come from. And uh, so my heart breaks for what's happening there. There's lots of religious complexity, of course, in what's taking place. But um you know, I think about the issues of justice and displacement and empire and religion and religious interfaith, religious dialogue and conversation and politics that are happening. It's just it's really hard. It's hard to watch that. It's hard for me to see all of the just just death in India. Um, that is just so heavy. Um oh. You know, I was it was interesting. I was in Dallas over the weekend and it was amazing how diverse Dallas felt compared to Charlotte. Dallas, mm -hmm. Dallas, folks, feels diverse compared to Charlotte. Uh, and like like I would drive by a soccer field and they'd be playing cricket. I'm talking about Indian folk, folks from India playing cricket on the so local soccer field. You're just not going to see that anywhere in Charlotte. Um and so I just I, I thought about how we're insulated from that because we don't have a lot of Indian neighbors in most sections of Charlotte. Uh, and there are places where you can, but you just don't see our Indian brothers and sisters very often. And so we don't feel the pain maybe as, as viscerally as we should for that. Um, yeah. And, I you know, I heard recently there was an NPR story that just popped up today in my feed that they are trying to recount how many have died from COVID and they're in the recount. It's looking more like 900,000 have oh. died from COVID. Um, and so we have been underestimating as we knew for a long time. Um, and so we might be already approaching a million and we didn't really know it. Uh, COVID deaths. So. And they keep happening then. Yeah. yeah. There was just a church that had a super spreader event. Oh, no. Where? Here? It was like, I think it was in Oregon. Oh, okay. There was a church that had a super spreader event. And yeah, like they thought that they, you know, you think you're fine, right? But no, you, you just a bunch of unvaccinated people coming together. That's bad right now. That's really yeah. bad. Uh, I had something and, and this, I think the, the, the rhetoric is ratcheting up around this actually even more so than it was during the Trump presidency. Like I had a, I had a flyer on my car this morning from somebody telling me not to take the vaccine. 
and to stop wearing a mask. Somebody's passing out flyers, put them on cars, telling people, you know, don't do this. Um, you know, I was on a, I was on an airplane. Everybody wore their mask on the airplane, but I heard the, the I was, I was, I heard the, um, the stewardesses and the, and the, and the folks, the, the flight attendants talking about how many people mess with them about the mask mandate on the plane and they just won't wear it. Or they're like holding piece of food or a drink in their hand and pretend to put it to their mouth every time the person walks by just so they don't have to wear the mask. Just ridiculous. I mean, it's it just, you know, I was talking to uh, some church folk about this on Friday. I just, the, the extent to which certain people go out of their way to mm. make a point, it's mm. aggressive and troubling. I, I don't, and if I'm wrong about this, somebody please correct me, but when I look at, if we're going to do binaries here, which I hate, if you look at liberal and conservative politically, let's just say that's politically, right? Mm. Um, you know, I don't see the same energy from liberals going out of their way to like disrupt a conservative person's life. You know, like I drive by all sorts of things in Charlotte. I'm like, okay, you know, but, but the people on the other side seem to go out of their way to make a mm. point. It's like something like that on the plane. You really... You're going to waste right. your whole two and a half hour flight being disrespectful. Just, like, don't you have something to do? I just sort of feel like I'm always like, do you not have a, anything to worry about? Like, right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Just the, the aggression of that. I guess last couple of things. I had a lot in the news today. The last thing I, I just want to put this out there because I, I kind of heard this. I don't know the, 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 the full truth of this yet, but there are because we have been received we have not received the full video and we don't know all the details related to what happened uh, with the shooting in Elizabeth city. Um, and um, I, I heard today um, from some clergy that were on the ground that more details are slowly coming out there about the murder of Andrew Brown. And one of the details there's, uh, let me just say they're very disturbing. Um, one of the details I learned today that has not been reported in the media yet is that there were 10 um, officers in tactical gear that were dispatched at 8.30 in the morning to a residential neighborhood that's in a school zone. Um, that's, that's what happened that precipitated the death of Andrew, uh, Andrew Brown. That's very suspicious. What, what would you need 10 SWAT officers in tactical gear at eight 30 in the morning to, you know, to, you know, in, in a school zone in a never in, in a neighborhood. What is that about? What is that? Yeah. And then, um, there, there are some, I don't know that this is true or not, but, um, there are some folks that, that make that it's, it sounds like there was a, that it was intentionally targeting this person that either he had had a previous encounter with police or that he had one of the rumors is that he had information about something the police did. And uh, so there's some wild stuff going on uh, in Elizabeth city. And I just think what's going to come out more over the course of the days ahead is going to be get worse and worse. And right now they're just biding time by not releasing any of that video um, so that they don't, doesn't, the whole city doesn't erupt. And, uh, anyway, I think just keep your, I, I would just say to folks who are looking at that, just keep your, keep your eyes open. And what you're hearing in the media is not always the truth about these stories. So, yeah.
Wow, I you know I've been intentionally distancing myself from some of that the on the the twenty four hour news cycle mm. because there's so much coming out about him and about Micaiah Bryant situation and um it's just it's a lot so we have to really take time to rest away from yeah. that not that we're ignoring it or we're not paying attention because I know there's going to be somebody on Twitter saying if your pastor isn't preaching about this on Sunday morning <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> but we're resting away. We need a sabbatical from some of this. It's not It's not healthy. So uh, anyway, thank you for sharing, Ben. Look, today's topic is what does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be white? And I, I've been talking with some people about this program and sort of how successful it became so quickly, at least at our church and then the, the beyond, beyond our church. And so I want to take some time to just chat about this program with you, Ben, um, and just to hear some of your ongoing thoughts and wrestlings around it. Um, as always, we open up with a quote, Ben. So do you have a quote or something that is um, crucial to the formation of this program? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one that is crucial, it is the motto of the program, or maybe the, I don't know what you call it, a motto, the mantra of the program is a better word is Baldwin's quote that white people are trapped in a history they don't understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. White people are trapped in a history they don't understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. Um, and that is the, so when you say, what does it mean to be white? If I was to summarize that and answer that question in a phrase, in a very simple phrase, what it means to be white is to be trapped in a lie. It is means to be trapped in what Baldwin calls the most successful conspiracy in world history. Um, or as uh, D'Angelo, the great singer said, the charade, you know, the great charade that we are all in in America. And the charade, of course, is the basic idea that white people are superior or lives matter more or are more important than people of color and particularly American descendants of slaves or black people uh, in America. So there's a lot there, uh, Mia, to start with. Um, <laughs> one of the ways that Baldwin talks about this is that white people are deluded, grow up in a delusion, you know, and that and that delusion begins to take on their take over their consciousness and every aspect of our existence, including our faith. And it, it perverts and corrupts our, our Christianity. Uh, in fact, the Christianity that we inherited was already corrupt with this notion from the point that we got it. So there is no pure Christianity for us to go back to. There is just the corruption that we received and working through dismantling uh, pieces of that or you know, separating things from that, uh, separating out the whiteness from our Christianity. So anyway, I start with that quote because that quote is so important, Baldwin. And the whole point of the course that I created is to help people to see them, see how trapped they are and to learn their history in the, in the, the truth of their history and who they are as white people, who we all are as white people to, so that we can possibly have a chance for liberation and salvation and freedom and not just us, but everybody. Cause if one of us is not free, all of us are not free, right? So um, this is about, you know, and, and the white path to freedom is not the same as the path for people of color. Our path is a rehumanization path. 
that goes through um, having our humanity return to us, returning to our humanity that we lost through our participation in this evil system of whiteness and white supremacy, um, where we lost our humanity by participating in the dehumanization of others. Um, so I start all that to say that I, yeah, I built this course in the way that I, with a particular pedagogy and this pedagogy is the key to the course's success if it's had any and that is it's all built around articles and movies and now music and poetry um, written and developed by black intellectuals artists and creatives or people of color who are artists and intellectuals and creatives that is specifically written not about just race in general but is written specifically about whiteness or white people. Going all the way back to W.E.B. Du Bois, the greatest American intellectual that we've ever had, in my opinion. Um, and, uh, but also following um, Harvard Law Review articles like Cheryl Harris uh, and um, poets like Toni Morrison and writers and authors like Baldwin and scholars and thinkers like Bell Hooks and theologians like Kelly Brown Douglas and Willie James Jennings. and. Uh, modern, more more contemporary writers like Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates and others, and then movies by Ava DuVernay like 13th, the documentary, or When They See Us, um, which is about the Central Park Five, or Ryan Coogler's um, Fruitvale Station uh, about the murder of Oscar Grant, or Get Out um, by Jordan Peele, um, or Malcolm X by Spike Lee. So these movies and movies and films and TV series and then articles, and now I have poetry written by like Nikki Giovanni and Jericho Brown, and um, I'm combining that with also music written by Abby Lincoln and Lead Belly and uh, many artists um, um, like Nina Simone and Will, uh, Jill Scott Heron, all throughout American history who've been writing as people of color about white people and what white people have been doing. Uh, and the, uh, to black people and people of color throughout American history. And what I call that whole pedagogy is the mirror, the mirror that is put up before us as white people from people of color, but black people particularly, uh, that helps us to see ourselves trapped in the history, to see ourselves more clearly. And, uh, but, you know, <laughs> we don't like what we see when we look in that mirror, which is why the course is done in accountability groups, small accountability groups, that are surrounded uh, with um, spiritual practices of silent meditation um, and mindfulness and carefully curated sort of things to get people in the space, guidelines for dialogue and how to show up and use I statements. So there's accountability um, and then there's responsibility. So it's far more than a book group or book study. This is a, an accountability process where white people have to show up having read and watch these films and and then talk about how they made them feel and not just what they thought but how it made them feel what what came out of them uh, what was most impactful what are they learning about whiteness so it's a journey of self-discovery it's a spiritual journey it's an anti-racist training all combined into one um, and uh, yeah it's been it's been pretty amazing to see um, how hungry people are for something that's uh, more serious like this. And that's focused on shifting the burden of responsibility from black people for racism and back to people like that look like me who created uh, whiteness and benefit from racism. Um, 
and you know it continues to expand it's amazing uh, finding the poetry and finding the music and adding those it's now like this sort of full multimedia experience you know multi-artistic um experience that hits you everywhere intellectually morally in your emotions um and so um yeah i mean that's what we've been doing for about a year since the murder of george floyd oh yes um i remember when it first started with your test group and i was like this is interesting okay <laughs> and, and then and then it kind of just took off you know in in the quarantine period i wonder if the quarantine if you like the quarantine period not not just the murder of George Floyd, but the the fact that people were home and willing to actually devote some time to this. Do you think that had effect on how it took yeah. off here? Yeah, I think that was the spark. It was the murder of George Floyd, plus the fact that people were sitting at home feeling like they had time on their hands. Uh, that gave them the opportunity um, and the time to devote to watching. I mean, it's about two two hours of reading minimum. And sometimes up to three hours of TV. Now, most people are watching a lot more television than that. So you just integrate that. But the reading, the two hours of reading a week of hard, difficult subjects was challenging. But people had time. They were home anyway. They're trying to figure out what to read anyway. Um, you know, but and then the other thing about Zoom, what it gave us ability to do was for people wherever they were, not to have to drive to a particular location and show up in person. And so we've had people participate from all over the country now because of that. And then that began to spread the word faster because it wasn't just a Charlotte thing. Uh, so I do think the pandemic had a lot to do with it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, I've been reflecting on the, what we call the whiteness groups here. <laughs> when we go in public, we have to say, you know, what we're talking about, people are like, what is the whiteness group? What is that? <laughs> Um, you so need to add like a verb in front, like dismantling or confronting right. or something. Yeah, yeah, because you know we just we're, we're always like the whiteness groups, and you know, <laughs> yeah, it's um, just you know la di da whiteness. <laughs> um, but this is a sort of affinity group, and I I know you've spoken about this before. But this is for people who are racialized as white, um, and so there have been questions about, or well, what about other people who want to do this to some extent? Or, uh, you know, what about, what, what about people who just want to know what's going on? Um, so what can you say to that? I mean, I have my thoughts, but um, I'd love to hear more about how you came to, to making this something specifically for people racialized as white. Yeah, I mean, I think what I was taught by black clergy, mentors, friends, um, activists, mentors, friends, uh, and others was I just kept getting told white people need to go do their work. There wasn't always, unfortunately, like a five point list of all the work that we needed to do, you know. So I had to go do my own work first. And I think one of the things that I realized this whole course came out of becoming increasingly frustrated about white dominant congregations that I've been leading as pastor who have not made, who've not been able to go very deep on this question, who, who have approached it as if they were doing a favor for their black neighbors to talk about race and, and who have not made much progress on the conversation or, or much depth or sustained depth on the con where um, they've retreated back into the 
comfort of denial, um, you know, all sorts of other things. So I was kept saying, like, what is that? Why is that happening? Why is that? Why is that occurring? And I realized it was me like and I had to do, go do my own work if I ever wanted any congregation that I was a part of to go any deeper. So I went on a long journey, a spiritual and academic journey of trying to look at my own whiteness and how it shows up in the work that I'm doing in the world, uh, how it's impacting the decisions that I make as a leader and the ways in which I lead and preach and pastor um, and teach um, and also parent and everything. Um, and I have a lot, there's a lot at stake there for me in those conversations as there are for everybody. So I did that work. And as I came to realize that work, I, the thing that I realized was I was, I had never been asked to look at my whiteness. I had never thought about whiteness. I'd never sat around and talked about what it means to be white. I had never uh, confronted what is whiteness, you know, and tried to look at it intellectually, theoretically, theologically, spiritually. I'd never done any of that work. And so that's what I spent, uh, I guess, about 10 years doing um, in, 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 a, in, in a process, the last two, the most intensive because they were related to an academic degree um, and a spiritual formation process that I was in, probably the last three. And uh, out of it came this course that I've developed. And so I really had to do my own work first and I'm still not done. I'm in progress. I'm constantly this will be lifelong work for me is what I've discovered um, that I will be constantly engaged in. Um, and then I thought, well, now is the time after George Floyd's murder, I can lead my congregation into this. So the group started as white affinity groups, and I think they function well as white affinity groups. But I will say we have learned um, not that they should not be exclusive, meaning it's a course titled, What Does It Mean to Be White? So it's already clear what the course is about. But if a person of color wants to learn what it means to be white or to sign up for the course, they're not excluded. So we've had people of color sign up throughout. We're not going to we're certainly not going to replicate the structures of American white supremacy by excluding people of color who want to be in this journey from it. Now, it does change the group and we have to be careful about certain things about the group when that happens. The facilitators have training on that. Um, but. I've had uh, people who are indigenous, uh, people who were biracial. Uh, we have people who are biracial in groups right now. Uh, we've had people who are just not biracial at all, totally uh, American descendants of slaves, 100%, or so they know. I don't know if anyone can fully know all that. Um, you know, um, and so we've, and we've had people from a lot of different national backgrounds and so the thing that I, the reason I've been, I think that that's worked, that people, the groups have sometimes in certain cases been a little salt and pepper and a little bit different is because whiteness hurts everyone, infects everyone. And so just like in the black community, Mia, there was the, uh, there's a whole movement from time to time to lighten black skin through products and to straighten black hair to look white whiteness is internalized racism that often people of color take on. There's also all sorts of other kinds of whiteness. It's not appearance driven that people want, whether it be wealth, you know? Um, yeah. So understanding the history of that and how it impacts like Ebony Marshall Term Terman, when she was here, she said, you don't have to be white to be a white supremacist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is a shock to a lot of white people, but it's true. And it also helps explain certain um, strange uh, phenomenon, like maybe a 
particular hip hop star supporting a particular president, you know? Um, and so, oh, where, where did that come from? How does that happen? Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think the folks who've been in the groups from different backgrounds that they've, they've also learned the thing I was worried about. And the reason I started the way I did was I was worried that the white people would look to the people of color to absolve their sins mm -hmm. and constantly be asking them, you know, and prompting them to say, I'm, I'm okay. Right. I'm not racist. Right. That's not racist. Is it? That's not racist, which then starts doing harm to the person of color and it absolved it like puts the white person off the hook in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. And then the other yeah. thing I was worried about is that they would look to the people of color in the group as the experts, which there's certainly a lived experience of being a person of color in American society that no white person will ever have as an experience. And that does not necessarily mean that the person of color in the group is going to be an expert on racial justice, <laughs> right? Or uh, whether or not you're being racist or whether or not something that you're talking about is a microaggression, for instance. And so, uh, and there's certainly not going to be necessarily any more of an expert than W.E.B. Du Bois or James Baldwin or Toni Morrison, right? So there's, um, that's why the black voices, black intellectuals, writings and voices and cinema and art is centered through the whole process and not white voices talking about what it means to be white. I don't trust white voices talking about what it means to be white, right? Uh, it's always people of color who, uh, as James Weldon Johnson said, people of color know white people better than they know themselves. Baldwin says this too in a number of places because they had to know white people for the sake of their own survival better than white people knew themselves. And that's still true today. Um, so I was worried that some of the groups, there would be the sense of like, absolve me from my sins or teach me what it means to be black and, or all the fragility, all the white racial, white tears and racial stress would be just flow out over and harm black people. So I didn't want to make it thing that like I intentionally came into the church to bring white and black people together, the abused and the abuser to have some kind of like, you know, summit where they were on the same ground and like, let's reconcile. That's not what I wanted to do at all because I thought that would be traumatic harm and pain. So what the way we avoid creating a white echo chamber is that we have accountability from black diversity, equity, and inclusive instructors who hold me and our facilitators accountable. And we meet with, uh, right now, Dr. Barry from Brownicity every month who troubleshoots with us how our own whiteness is showing up in our facilitation, as well as what kind of pedagogical techniques we can use to help the process be more meaningful and deep. I love that. And I, I love the, the idea of having an accountability partner uh, or partners. Um, I particularly have enjoyed uh, just sort of watching things happen and not having to do that work. <laughs> Um, which is something that I learned from a mentor. You know, there, you know, you talk about um, there, there being so many different ways, uh, kinds of blackness and ways to do this work or not do this work. And that is very true. There are some people who are like, yes, this is my work. I'm going to get in here. I'm going to do it. And then there are pastors that I know of who are like, yeah, no, I hired out for that. You know, I had one of my mentors is a black woman. She's in her 60s. And when all this stuff was happening last summer, she was like, no, Mia, I, uh, I hired out for that. And I was like, that's yeah. amazing. I mean, Talk about the Methodist Church. She had resources to hire out for that, right? But, um, but that, I mean, that's very important. That's been a, a crucial part of the program, at least for me as a person who's witnessing it. Um, and I've also witnessed this need to have this kind of work done in Black spaces. And, you know, I've been working on this 
um, this curriculum project, and it's centered around having these types of con uh, conversations around liturgy, decolonizing liturgy in white dominant progressive churches. And I've talked to black clergy who are like, oh my God, you should do this at my church. And I'm like, yeah. one thing at a time, because it's two different courses. I mean, it's yeah. two different conversations. And I think that, um, I think that whiteness does play out in black church settings and other black institutional settings. And it's a different kind of conversation. And so yeah. making sure we are mindful of separating that um, and another one of my reflections has just been about how whiteness is so toxic that even folks you didn't expect to be uh, uh, turned off or uh, I don't know what the word is that's nice pissed off by the conversation are and one of you know I, I talk I talk to a lot of my. Uh oh, my internet went out. Am I here? No. Yeah, there you are. All right. I talked to a lot of my uh, Black queer and Black LGBTQ friends who are firm believers that if a white queer or LGBTQ person could choose whiteness over identifying with the other struggle, they would. Um, mm. And mm. and I have personally seen that play out in the past year and a half. I have seen people who we thought were down because maybe they identify as lesbian or trans or, or gay or something. We thought they were down with all liberation causes. But as soon as we started yeah. talking about this, you know, abolishing whiteness stuff, it was like, oh, no, 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 that's too much. And so we have to be mindful of the um, that none of this is a monolith, not whiteness, not, not, not uh, white identity, not black identity or LGBTQ identity. Uh, none of this is a monolithic identity. And so that's been eye-opening for me to witness um, throughout this course. Baldwin says that whiteness is just a metaphor for power. So there's no real, the whiteness is, doesn't exist, right? It's not real. I mean, white, there are no white people. I, I, even now I'm showing up looking a little red today, right? So I'm, I'm not really white. If you put up the white color wheel or my white door behind me, I'm not white. Whiteness is a lie as a construction, right? But it's not, it's a lie that's used to steal. It's a lie used to take power, to steal labor, lives, people, um, you know, um, politics, economics, money, you know, land is a big one. <laughs> and so it's always about power so it doesn't matter if a person has been disempowered in some place especially so actually sometimes that makes it even harder for a person who's been disempowered in some aspect of their identity whether it be sexual gender racial etc whiteness can seem like a, a way to find power in a world where you've been disempowered uh, and because that's what whiteness is it's just power it's just blind power with no morality uh, it's just nihilistic. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's nothing there. there's no culture behind it. There's no goodness behind it. There's no nothing to redeem behind it. It is just power using race to use to, for power over over against not even power with or power for it's power over against others and a power of oppression. So you'll see people cling to it. I mean, people will cling to it to the end of the, because the last thing people want taken from them is their power. It, they will kill for that. They will destroy for that um, because power is money. Power is possession. Power is property. P 
power is control, even though none of us are really in control of our lives. It's an illusion, right? So, but the illusion, white people love illusion. We're trapped in a lie anyway. So every delusion and illusion we love, you know, you know, so I think there's this sense that even if you're an LGBTQ person, you may, you may cling to the power that whiteness gives you in a world where you've been disempowered sexually or in your gender. Um, and it's just in some of the same way, sort of like LG folks weren't ready to get down with transgender. Right. You know, and that, that question was hard. Um, you kind of make it through the doorway. It's like any immigrant group, the sexuality and gender group. Once you make it through the doorway of assimilation and you had to kick it down because they weren't going to open it for you. So you had to kick it down. Sometimes it feels good to close that door behind you. Mm. Right. Instead of holding that door open for everybody else as they're coming through, because it's hard. That's not fun to stand there and hold the door, uh, hold the door open for people. So, yeah, I keep, I think it's really important. I, I, one of the things I try to talk about in the whiteness groups is that race is not about hatred, that we make the mistake in thinking that racism is about hatred. The hatred results from racism. It's not the cause, it's the result. Power, race is about power and not about hatred. We use the hatred to mask the power. Um, so anyway, I, I think, yeah, that's 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 going to be a hard thing for a lot of people is to give up the power that comes from it. One of the stories that one of our members, Nancy Walker, I'll give her credit, came up for in her own ingenious. No one prompted her. No one was asking for a biblical story that when she was one of the original participants that went through the process and when she was wrestling with the concept of whiteness as property. Uh, maybe in that week or the week later, she said, it's like the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And whiteness is the thing that Jesus asks the rich young ruler to give up possessions, power. And the rich young ruler walks away because he can't do it. Wow. Walks away dejected. And he said, she said, that's where all of us are. Jesus is saying, give this up. Yeah, you're great. You've been a good Christian all your life. You've been a good Democrat all your life. You've been a good Republican or whatever you've been all your life. Good for you. Um, <laughs> this is what you need to give up, your whiteness, because it's a lie. It's a delusion. And it's a delusion of power. Can you give it up? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, speaking of theological reflection, I've been um, I've been thinking on what would what would be a, a scripture or what, some sort of scriptural basis for this, this sacred work. I do consider this sacred work that you have curated for people to do. Um, and a lot of times I've thought about the the sin of whiteness, not that mm. whiteness or white supremacy is a sin. And, you know, the Reverend Michael Walworth Jr. would say that sin is too easy because uh, white people know what to do with sin. It's go to church mm. and you pray and it goes away. Right. But more of an addiction. He calls it an addiction because it's something you actually have to wrestle with. But if mm. we were to view it as sin, um, one of the passages that that came to me was Psalm 32. Um, and the author says, while I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For uh, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. The writer goes on. But I was thinking about sin in terms of this thing that separates us from ourselves because it separates us from the divine. And if we're made in the image of God and likeness of God, right? So we're separated from our true selves because of this issue, right? 
Um, right. And so I, don't, I think that's work that all of us have to do, right? I sit with myself often and say, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I confess my transgressions and that's not something you can do on church and confession on Sunday mm-hmm. morning, right? That gives you an, this is the problem of, of thinking of it as sin because it gives you an easy way out because you said, you know, in your 45 second confession that you confessed to the center of white supremacy and now you're absolved. <laughs> Right. And so but this is a deeper work, a midnight hour work of actually mm. sitting with what is separating you from yourself. Um, and that's what all of us have to do, whether we are racialized as white or black or Latina or whatever. Right. That there's some there's something in our lives that we have to sit with. And it's not something that's going to be easily removed and vanished after service on Sunday. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. I, th- I think about it as evil. I, there's even a whole week on whiteness as evil in the series. It's week, it's week three, and we read Malcolm X that week, who's pretty clear about <laughs> whiteness as evil. Um, but you know, there are a lot of others who would call it that. I mean, Willie Jennings calls it a principality, and Willie Jennings, is a Christian theologian, principality comes from the language of Paul, powers and principalities, and we don't necessarily have to have Walter Wink, but he's helpful in getting us to see that that is structural systems of domination. That's what the principalities and powers that Paul is referencing there. And so whiteness would, of course, be the ultimate system of domination in American society built, built from the beginning. Um, you know, one of the things <laughs> when you talk about sin that I was thinking about is Thomas Merton has this book that no white people read called New Seeds of Destruction. He's got the one all white people read is the Seeds of Contemplation. But he's got one called the Seeds of Destruction, which is all about Uh, the black power movement and his wrestling with the black power movement. And in that, he says that black people, black Americans have held out the hand of salvation for white Americans, offering them the gift of salvation, whether it be through the civil rights movement, the black freedom movement, uh, whatever it be. And white people have turned it down. They've turned down salvation. And so Baldwin would come alongside and say this actually too. Baldwin later Baldwin says that he calls it betrayal, that white Americans have betrayed the gift that African Americans have offered, which is of course the gift of a multiracial democracy, right? The gift of a new Jerusalem over and over again, we continue to turn down the gift of salvation that is offered to us by our neighbors who we are, we have been oppressing, right? How wild is it that, the neighbor who we oppress offers us the gift of salvation and we continue to turn it down and turn it down. We do so to our own doom, right? Both Baldwin and Merton would say both spiritual doom and political doom and national doom. Uh, So Baldwin says at one point that people, we have been brought to the brink of extinction as a race, human race by people who think they're white, right? Because they think they're white, we've been brought to the brink of extinction. And so climate change is a huge part of whiteness that we have to wrestle with. But um, anyway, I, I think that that idea that what is salvation, right? So sin and salvation are related concepts. So if the sin is white supremacy or whiteness, then what is the salvation? The salvation is being offered and handed to us by Black Lives Matter by the anti-prison, anti-policing, you know, anti-police brutality, anti-prison industrial complex, the, the, the gift of salvation is being offered to us, right? And this doesn't just mean for whiteness. It also could go for patriarchy or 
homophobia or whatever it is that is being the sin that's being saved. Women are trying to save men. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they don't have to do this. Right. They're being oppressed. They have no reason by which to try to save their oppressors. They, and they have no obligation to do so either, but are trying to hand it out. And we keep turning down salvation over and over and over again. And I think that's what Baldwin means when he says we're trapped in a history we don't understand. We are we can't be free. We can't be liberated. We can't be saved until we begin to accept that. Um, so, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's a complex issue. And I mean, I'm sure there's so much more. Uh, we could go into about this, but if you have not taken the course, it is still available. Mm -hmm. right, ben? You have several. Yeah, yeah we're having it. people sign up all the time. Uh, I'm leading courses for folks all over the country. Connecticut, pass a group of Baptist pastors in Connecticut, a Lutheran church in Chicago, uh, a group of folks in Nashville, um, some folks here locally that are a group of teachers at a local school. So I'm doing a lot of the large, kind of larger groups outside the church, but we have 25 trained facilitators that are leading church groups all the time here in, in both our congregation. You don't have to be a church member to go through it. Um, you know, folks are going through. We have groups that have been going on in Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches all throughout the city. Um, yeah, the opportunity is available for folks to do this work at any time. It is not a panacea for the problems of whiteness and white supremacy in our society, but it is a beginning. Right. It is, it is a beginning of a journey for white people to take responsibility to, to the way I describe it is to move from colorblind racism to responsibility for the the horror and the evil of white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all righty, then. <laughs> hey, can I drop one more scripture on them? Can I drop one more scripture? Because I know, I know people are like. You know, they're out there thinking, God, there's all this whiteness. It sounds like a bunch of critical race theory. And Trump told me I don't oh, have to read that. Trump, Trump told me I don't have to read that. Uh, anyway, read various articles on why you do need to read critical race theory. But here's the, here's some scripture on this. So I've been thinking about this concept of the mirror and how what I really created was just a giant mirror, a nine-week mirror uh, that is put up for us, that's been put up for 200 years for us by black people. Oh, man, would you, wouldn't you know, James... The great James has an awesome text about mirrors in the book of James. And I'm going to read it. It's in James 1. This is 22 through 25. He says, be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Deception. That's already a key word that we're talking about white people. Um, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror and quickly turn away and immediately forget what they saw. But those who look into the perfect law, and what is the perfect law, James says? The law of liberty, freedom, liberation, salvation, right? And persevere, being not just hearers who forget, but doers who act. They will be blessed in their doing. So I tell you, that'll preach. That'll preach for that text right there on that. I mean, this is what yeah. it means. We we. The mirror is being constantly put up when George Floyd is dying and the knee of Chauvin is on his neck. That is a mirror to white people. Don't let that mirror be something you look away from. Keep yeah. looking in the mirror over and over again. Persevere in your looking in the mirror and you will go from being just a hearer to a doer on this thing. Yeah. 
one more thing then, because um, I forgot about the music. I forgot about the music part, which is my well, favorite. Oh, we need to do a whole other podcast on the music. Yeah, we do. We do. I uh, I love the, the Ben has curated a playlist on Spotify and YouTube, which you can find on the What Does It Mean to Be White landing page on our website. But um, I just I love the diversity. Um, I love how it goes through the eras. You know, you have like Beyonce, but also like you know Billie Holiday and. I thought it was great. And, and I've been thinking a lot about media lately and how unfamiliar so many people I've talked to are with black media. I was talking to somebody mm-hmm. about a raisin in the sun and this, you know, 60 something year old mm-hmm. white woman who has actually gone through what does it mean to be white is saying, I've never heard of that play or movie. And I'm like, wow. that is a, that's like a mm-hmm. seminal work in black culture. Um, both the original with Sidney Poitier and the remake in 2004, right? Or whatever movie, whatever movie came out. So I just, I, I urge people to go listen to the playlist because you may hear some things you've never heard before um, or some oh, things man. that are familiar to you. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, we need to do a whole nother podcast where you and I just talk about the music. So we'll do that because the music, we could spend hours talking about these songs and what they say. It is its own educational experience to listen to this music that comes to us all the way from back in the early 20s, all the way up into the present day. Her song, I Can't Breathe, just got won a Grammy. So it goes from the Grammy Award winners all the way, you know, all the way back to the 1920s blues singers singing about Strange Fruit and the bourgeois blues and the backlash blues and Jim Crow blues and all the different blues that white people create in the world. And it's just amazing the expansiveness of of the black experience. First of all, that's amazing, and black art is amazing uh, and creativity. But also how clear the message has been about white people for so long, and how it's been tied from the beginning to policing and prisons and violence, and how it's always been about freedom and liberation, and um, and how often it's also been about money. And stealing, theft, you know, I mean, the song by the Staples sisters, you know, or the Staples singers, when will we get paid? That's just one. When will we get paid for the work we've done? We built all your roads, your houses, your bridges, your churches, your your whole country. And we took care of your children and we fought in every one of your wars. When are you going to when are we going to get paid? You know, uh, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of concepts, reparations, prison, policing that come up throughout this politics. Uh, it's really important for white folks to listen to this music. Yeah. Yes. And on that note, go listen to the the playlist. So when we talk about the episode, we talk about it in the next episode. You'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, thank you for joining us today for Sacred Justice. This has been a fruitful conversation. I Bye. hope you all have a good rest of your week. See you next time. Friends, that was our episode this week. As always, please email your questions and your suggestions to Reverend Mia McLean at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Until next time, take care. This is Sacred Justice.